this Easter? I, I don't get it. And what we need to start with that is that all of Scripture, all of Scripture is about Jesus. From the first word into the last, all of Scripture points to Jesus. There's, there's kind of two concepts that you learn. Is one is there are these narratives. There's the narrative of creation. There's the narrative of Exodus that we're going to study. There's the narrative of Jonah that we're going to look at in May. There's all these narratives. But those are sub-narratives to a meta-narrative, this larger story that's being told. And that larger story is of the rescue and redemption of God's people. And so every single word that we come across in Scripture is, is sort of this arrow that's blinking and pointing towards something that's still coming. And so what we're going to do, and what I'm really excited about for this month, is we're going to look at a story that is familiar to many people in Exodus, and we're going to see this blinking light that is pointing towards Jesus. And so as we watch the uh, people of God, the, the, the sons of Israel in captivity and released and redeemed, what we're going to see is the same way that Jesus took sinners and released and redeemed, and we're going to see our own lives and go, we've been released and redeemed. So today we start out by uh, talking about rescue. And we're going to be mainly talking about the life of Moses. And so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1, and then we'll skip ahead to 2, and then we'll skip ahead to 3. And so if you know how long the book of Exodus is, it's a big chunk, and we're going to do it in four weeks, which means we're going to fly a little bit. And so I'm going to read a lot, and we're going to talk a lot, and hopefully we're going to get through this. Exodus 1 verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt, a new king who did not know Joseph. So Joseph was uh, kind, benevolent to the sons of Israel. And so when the new king comes up and he doesn't even know of Joseph, it, kind of what it's saying is, is the good favor for the people of God is gone. It's gone with Joseph. So he said to his people, this new king, he said, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. So come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So, so the sons of Israel are slaves in Egypt. And the the king says, hey, look, there's more of them than us. That's not good. If you want to see what that does, Google the like, history of Haiti or the Haitian Revolution and see what happens when there's more slaves, uh, more oppressed than oppressor. It doesn't go well. Verse 11, so they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors, which they rigorously imposed on them. And then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives who would deliver the children, right? One of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Puah. And, and he, he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and you see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live going to extreme measures here. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. But they let the boys live. And so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives cleverly said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women. They are vigorous, and they give birth before midwives can even get to them. I love this. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. But then Pharaoh, Pharaoh commanded all of his people. So he's done with the midwives. He says, I'm going to make this a, a wider decree, a universal in my kingdom. He says, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. Throw him in the river. Every daughter you may keep alive. So here's the people we're dealing with. This, the sons of Israel, they're enslaved, they're afflicted, they're... they're 
building bricks out of mud and straw. 14 hours a day, 16 hours a day. Every time they'd hit a threshold, their quota would be raised. And yet they continue to thrive and multiply. So life is hard, and yet Pharaoh is wanting to make it harder. And so he has this decree that all the males are to be killed. Too many Israelites. And so the idea is that genocide would fix the problem. Now, Exodus 2, we pick up the story in verse 2. A man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. Moms in the room, do you remember when you saw your, your child for the first time? I, I remember, so I didn't even carry a child, right? Obviously. I, I remember when our firstborn, the doctor said, hey, it's your turn, you're going to catch and I'm in the room, and I said, what? And, you know, they're all scrubbed in and clean. And she goes, yeah, yeah. Whenever you see armpits, just stick your hands in and pull. And I was like, wow. Okay, this is getting real. You know, and I've been, it's 13 hours of labor, and I probably have, like, Cheetos on my face, and I'm just half asleep and just trying to hang in there. And here I am. And, and so I do. I do what I'm told. She goes, it's just like a football. And I was like, yeah, yeah I was more of a basketball player, so she didn't care. And I... I hold this child for the first time. And, and I was almost ashamed. I told my wife later, I said, look, I, I love you. And, and I love you a lot. And my love is growing for you every day. But it was like stunning to me how much I loved her the second I met her. Like it took me all this time to love you the way I love you. And, and I think I can do it better. I'm not sure I could love her more. It, it was just stunning to me. And so that's the picture I get with these women who are having these babies, and, and they're looking, and they're going, gosh, what do I do? And so this one woman, she conceives, she bears a son, and she sees he's beautiful. She holds him for the first time, and she goes, no way. He's not going in the river. So she hides him for three months, but that can only last so long. When she could hide him no longer, it says in verse 3, she got a wicker basket. She covered it with tar and pitch. She put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. We'll notice the irony later that instead of casting him into the Nile, he went into the Nile a different way. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh, the daughter of the king, came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying. So she had pity on him and she said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. The sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that may nurse the child for you? And she said, yeah, go ahead. So the girl went and called who else? The child's mother. Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child, the mother took the child, and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And so she named him Moses, or Moshe, and said, it's because I drew him out of the water. The Hebrew Moshe means to be drawn out. What are the odds that this baby, hidden for three months, is going to be found by Pharaoh's daughter? And what is the implication of that? Not only is, is the baby going to survive, but this baby, as it grows, is now in the inner circle of power in the kingdom. Of the enslaved people, it's now in the inner circle. There's this glimmer of hope that starts to show up for the people of God as you read this narrative. Because it's just more hardship, more hardship, more hardship. Wait a minute, Moses got in. There's a Hebrew in the house of Pharaoh. He's going to get the best food, the best care. He's going to be trained as a leader and a general. He's going to have an incredible education. We might have something here. 
Maybe Israel has found a hero. Or maybe not. Verse 11. It came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren. He looked on their hard labors. So Moses is now of this privileged class, and he's looking as the Egyptians continue to ride the sons of Israel. He sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren, so he looked this way and that. And when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he replied, who made you prince and judge over us? Are you intending to kill me in the way that you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. Moses, this hero, he's, he's got the inside track. He's, he's going to help save our people. And in a moment of, of rage, in a moment of, of trying to right an injustice, he kills an Egyptian man, hides him in the sand, thinking no one's going to have seen it. And then it's his own people that say, are you going to kill us too? The matter has become known. To which we ask, where's the greater shame in his life? Or maybe where's the greater shame in our life? Is it in the acts that we commit or is it in that others know about it? We like to think that we have this shame around, around sin and, and, and yet I'm not always convinced that, that it isn't just about whether others know or not. Moses, we don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't say that he had some big issue with what he had done the day before. He's back out patrolling, looking around. Only when it becomes known does true fear strike in the heart of Moses. And so in the midst of trouble, Moses does what we all do. He runs. The reality is we all run to escape in one way or another. Moses runs to a place called Midian. It's a dry, desolate place, a desert place in the southeastern Sinai. So he leaves the king's court, overflowing with wealth and privilege and everything he needs. And because he's been found out, because of shame and guilt, he runs. He spends 40 years in hiding. This is epic hiding, right? Because running is pointless if you can't hide. As the third born in my family, I figured this out. You got older brothers and sisters, when they're punching on you and aggravating, running is fine, but they'll catch you. Hiding is where it's at. I had a sort of a stubborn streak, a little like Moses, maybe. I never really compared myself to him. Probably shouldn't. But when I would get in trouble, and this happened relatively frequently, I I would get um, exiled from the dinner table, for example. So we'd be at the dinner table, and, and my mom would just say, take your plate, go to the other room. The good news is the other room was down the hall, and I could still see the dinner table from the other room, and I could make enough noise that they still had to pay attention to me. And so I'd go my 15 steps away, I'd set my plate down, and I'd continue to just be a mess. Eventually, someone would get tired of it, and they'd say, fine, out with sweetness. Sweetness um, was our cat. She lived outside. She only lived outside. She was not friendly. And it was sort of this like ultimate punishment is you're not even fit to live indoors anymore. Why don't you take your plate outside? Which was actually a blessing because it was easier to get their attention from outside because there was a big window right outside the dining room. And so I'd hang from a tree and make, take my shirt off and just, it was great. It was good stuff. Eventually that would lead to in my Catholic upbringing, a kneeling and saying the rosary on a wooden floor in a corner somewhere. And my rebellion from that was I'll show them. So I became an epic hider. I would go and I'd say, look, I'm going to punish them. I can't punish them any other way. They, they seem to have figured this out. And so what I'll do is I'll punish them by just disappearing and no one will ever find me. 
I wasn't brave enough to run away, so I just ran into my room, and I'd find a place that no one could find me. One day, I was in a box in the closet, and I find a way to close the box and pull stuff over the box, and I slept there. Good luck. How you feel now, Mom? That's right. Another time, I had a kind of a metal frame bed, and it was pushed all the way up against the wall, and so the broad side of the bed was up against the wall, and it was a pretty sturdy bed. It was a, like a trundle bed. It had the, the bed that came out from the inside, and so it was heavy. So I was a you know, you wouldn't know it by looking at me now, but I was kind of a skinny kid. And so I, I wedged myself between the wall and the bed, like, like a torpedo sort of. And so if you looked on top of the bed, I'd plan of like put the covers over me and I put some pillows up there. So you couldn't see if you just went in the room, there's nothing on the bed. And if you looked under the bed, well, I'm as straight as an arrow. You, there's nothing under the bed. He's not there. Where could he be? Spent a whole night that way. I couldn't feel my arm for six weeks. Didn't matter. I showed them. What's the good in running if you can't hide? And yet what I know now about who I was then, I ran because of shame and I, I hid out of just sheer stubbornness. I didn't care if it was painful. I didn't care if it was isolating. I just wanted to inflict pain on someone else and I didn't want to deal with it myself. And what we know from scripture, what we know from our own lives is you can't outrun God. You can't hide from God. Humanity learned that in the garden, right? Right? Sin enters into the world, and, and, and God is like, guys, where are you? Sort of the omnipresent creator of, I know, I know you're here. And, and Adam and Eve were trying to hide. The question isn't whether we run, but it's where do we hide when we're running from God? Where do we hide when we're running from God? People hide in old relationships. People hide in the internet. People hide by binge-watching some show. People hide in food. People hide in drink. People hide in a career. People hide in a hobby. The place you hide need not be evil for the fact that you're hiding to be less than good. And some of us have good things we run to, wholesome things we do, but the fact that you're running in and of itself is the issue. It's not about where you go. It's about what you're doing. Shame sends us running. Stubbornness makes us hide. So we're ashamed of what we've done. We're ashamed that we're not stronger or, or smarter or better, that we hadn't learned this lesson before, and so we run, and yet we can't outrun God. The beauty of this is with deep affliction comes deep restoration. You know this when you see a home renovation show. You, no one watches a renovation show where the house is like really, really nice, and they clean the floors. See? It's like 1% nicer now. The shows that you want to watch are the ones where they take some house that might as well not even exist. It's in such terrible shape. And then they totally do a radical transformation. That's where you go, that's amazing. That speaks to my soul. I don't even know why I like these home renovation shows, but gosh, do you see that? I could have afforded the first one. I could never afford the second one. That's awesome. Why? Because deep affliction leads to deep restoration. And Midian matters for us. Moses spends 40 years. How deep must his affliction be? 40 years in Midian. But God has a purpose. While he's there, this hot-headed God learns humility. The hot-headed Moses learns humility. Numbers says that Moses was the most humble man on earth. Quote, the most humble man on earth. The guy who saw somebody beating a countryman, killed him and buried him in the sand, is now the most humble man on earth. Like God needed him to be humble before he'd be ready to fulfill God's purpose. 
It's almost like God uses every moment of our lives to propel us towards his perfect plan. It's almost like God doesn't waste a moment of our lives. It's almost like no matter how far you run, no matter how deep your shame, that God will draw you out. And he will not just draw you out, but God has this way of drawing you out towards his purpose in your life. Moses finds a wife. He finds a son. He has a job. There's food on the table. And he's unsatisfied. Moses is unsatisfied in Midian. He has everything that that a man would need. But he lacks something. Because the truth is, you'll never experience deep, lasting satisfaction out of the purpose God has for your life. You will never experience deep, lasting satisfaction outside of the purpose God has for your life. Momentary happiness, yes. Good vacations, sure. But deep, lasting satisfaction comes from something greater. I used to lead people on mission trips all the time, and we'd be in all places around the globe. And I'd have people at the end of these mission trips in Africa and Haiti, and and they'd say, hey, I've never felt like this before. Why can't my whole life feel this way? This is amazing. I've lived this whole week, and we helped those people, and we did these things, and and this is amazing. I wish my whole life would feel this way. Maybe this is why I'm so unsatisfied. Maybe I should move here, is what they always would come up with. I'm moving to this place because this is where life feels good. And I'd always kind of make this face that wasn't the nicest face. And they'd be like, what? I'm volunteering to be a missionary. What's wrong with that? And I'd say it has nothing to do with the place. It's that you're finally living your purpose. Like you finally got in a place that allowed you to put God's agenda ahead of yours. And now you realize this is awesome. But it has nothing to do with where you are. You can do this anywhere. Because guess what? Once you live in a place... It doesn't take long before your agenda jumps in front of God's again. And you go, man, I don't feel satisfied here either. It had nothing to do with the place. It has to do with once in my life, I finally got God's agenda ahead of my agenda. And in doing so, I found my pure purpose. Because the the trajectory here is the same for all of us. And this is hard. Every single one of us is on the exact same life trajectory. Which is every single one of us will be mourned by the people who love us. Like, that's not fun to hear. We're all on the same trajectory. We have one life and one chance. And there are too many of us that are content to quietly die when the offer from God is to truly live. We all mess up. We all run to escape. We all hide in shame. And yet we all encounter God. Chapter 3. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the west side of the wilderness. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in blazing fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, and yet the bush was not consumed. And so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why is the bush not burned up? When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. Moses said, here I am. He said, do not come near and remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said, I'm the God of your father. God, God tells him, this is who's here, Moses. 
Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. I'm aware of their sufferings. I've come to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians to bring them up to the land that is good and spacious, the land flowing with milk and honey. Verse nine, now behold, he says, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Do you think God is listening when you cry out? I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. God says, I have a plan to deliver you, Moses. I've drawn you out, but I have a plan to deliver you. And so in this burning bush, God unveils this plan. He takes takes Moses' attention and he says, here, this is where we're going next. In trial or triumph, I would suggest that anything that can get your attention like that and show you God might very well be a burning bush in your life. If you are here this morning, it is not by accident. You're not here because you took a wrong turn. You're here because you are supposed to be here. And I wonder what the burning bush moment in your life has been and what it might be. Therefore, verse 10, it says, Come now and I'll send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? Moses knows who he is. Moses was abandoned as a child so that he might have a chance to survive. He was taken into the house of Pharaoh and he ruined it by going and murdering somebody, burying them in the desert, and then fleeing in shame and hiding out in stubbornness. And Moses says, who am I? God says, I have a plan for your life. You cannot outrun me no matter how far gone you think you are. You can't outrun me. No matter how far gone. It's a story from a year or two ago about a little boy named Gardell Martin. Gardell Martin was a 22-month-old. He lived in rural Pennsylvania. His family lived on uh, five acres, and they had this stream running through their property. It was an ice-melt-fed stream, and so it was cold. It's estimated about 34 degrees was the temperature of the stream about this time of year as the ice was finally melting and the stream was starting to flow. And so Gardell and his older brother, who was seven, went out to play. They're playing and they've been warned not to go too close. And yet Gardell's 22 months old. He goes too close. He's swept into the stream. His brother sees him fall in, runs to the bank of the the river to try to pull him out, knows he can't get him, and immediately runs back into the house to tell his mom. Because his brother is gone. They call 911. Start calling neighbors. Everyone downstream, they're just calling down the line. My son, he got swept away. Look for him. Please help me, please. After about half an hour of searching, one of the neighbors downstream actually finds this little boy. He's in the Y of a branch in the middle of the stream. So he's been in the middle of this stream with 34 degree waters pushing over him, just barely his head above water. They get this rescue. They pull the little boy out. The paramedics immediately start CPR. Take him from the stream. They put him into the ambulance. CPR the whole way from the ambulance to the little community hospital. As soon as they get to the community hospital, as they roll him into the little emergency room, still doing CPR, the people in the hospital, the triage says, we don't have what we need to, to help him here. We need to get him on life flight to the, the next major pediatric emergency room. And so they immediately turn him around and they roll him back out the other way, still doing CPR onto the helicopter. 
Helicopter flight to the emergency room. Still doing CPR. By the time they get to the emergency room, over 30 people have had their hands on this little boy. Because CPR is exhausting work. And so as they switch out and they trade out, there's 30 people, paramedics, nurses, doctors, who have had their time pushing on the chest of this little boy. Still not breathing. His body temperature is 77 degrees. And 101 minutes after he had been plucked from the icy stream, almost two hours, he gasps. He breathes. He's alive. No brain damage, no lasting trauma, and as the days go by, no memory of those two hours of his life that had to be absolutely terrifying. You and I find ourselves in the same position. We fall headlong into sin and shame. We know not to get too close. We do. And then we're swept away in it. We think we're too far gone. We think that there's no chance that someone's going to rescue me from. There's no chance I can come back from that. And yet God sends person after person into your life. God sends circumstance after circumstance into your way. God sends burning bush after burning bush and says, are you paying attention yet? All to remind us that no matter how far we run, no matter how far gone we are, that you are never beyond God's reach, that we are never beyond his ability to breathe life into us again that there are none beyond redemption, that you're never too far gone. So when Moses says, who am I? I'm not worthy of that. God's answer in verse 12 is, I will be with you. Moses says, who am I? God's answer is, I will be with you. Which is to say you're asking the wrong question, son. It's not about who you are, it's about who I am. And if I will be with you, then you can stand tall. If I will be with you, you can have courage. If I will be with you, redemption is on your doorstep. It isn't about who you are. It isn't about how far you're gone. It isn't about what you know or how deep your faith. It's about who is the object of the faith. People say, God can't use me. I hear it all the time. God, God can't use me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know, what I, you don't, you don't know how I am right now. I've been the one sitting in church, hungover or high. I've been that person saying, God can't use me. God says, it isn't about you. It's about me. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Probably heard that. God doesn't call the qualified. It's not because you're good enough that he calls you in. It's not because you're good enough that he asks you to lead. It's not because you're good enough that he says, can you help me? He, he he qualifies the called. He says, Moses, come on, dude. Moses, I've drawn you out. Your name means I will draw you out. Do you not trust me? God is telling Moses, I have a plan for your life to lead your people. Verse 17, he actually says, I will draw you out of the affliction of Egypt. He tells that to the people. As if Moses' name didn't mean enough, the drawn out one is the one set aside to draw the larger people out. God has a purpose for your life. Moses' whole story comes into focus. The basket and the reeds, he's found by Pharaoh's daughter, names him Moshe, he's fleeing to Midian. He says, who am I? And God says, you're exactly who I made you to be. 
And so the reality for us as we read the story is we must all respond to God's plan for our life. Yeah, this isn't about me. This is about Moses. I don't think our story is that different. Broken in sin, running in shame, hiding in fear. Ephesians would say we're dead in our transgression. Our sin leaves us feeling like, I'm out, I'm dead. Why try? Scripture says that we're plucked out of that icy stream. But Jesus was God's hand reaching down to say, not yet. New life. So maybe today the call is to remember. Maybe the burning bush today says, remember where you were. Remember what he pulled you out of. Remember what he saved you from. Remember who you were before you said, I'm a follower of Christ. Remember the rescue that took place, that took, man, a wretch like me and breathed new, beautiful, purposeful life back into me. Maybe the call is to grab hold of the hand that's reaching out for you. Maybe you are still running. You say, yeah, I can reach, but I'm not strong enough anyway. I still don't have it right. I still haven't figured it out. I still don't have the answers. The beauty of Jesus is that he didn't wait for us to get it right. What we're going to see on Good Friday is when Jesus takes the cross, he takes it for you and I before we were ever born. And he says, this is for your sin. I will die for your sin. And then in rising, I will destroy death with it. There will be no more death. And my resurrection means that life is yours if you want it. And Jesus, we see every day breathes life into lifeless bodies. I've heard your stories. I hear more of them every week. Yeah, I was into this. I was doing that. I was so far gone there. Man, everybody gave up on me. I hear the story all the time. God didn't. It's not the quality of your faith that saves you, but the quality of the Savior. So if you are weak, it's no concern. If you are, I don't know enough yet, not your problem. If you are willing to let the hand of God reach down and pluck you from the stream, that's enough. So maybe today we take a deep breath. We don't take our next one for granted just as much. And we wonder why it is that God is sustaining us, why it is that God is ongoing redeeming us every day. What is his purpose for your life? Some people always say, I'm not, I'm like a minister, I don't know. <laughs> we are all ministers. I stand up here, shout about all this stuff. It doesn't make me one ounce more a minister than you. We are all responsible for the ministry that Christ has left us, which is to go and take his word into a world awash in darkness and watch as the story of redemption brings light. And some of us have big platforms to do it, and some of us have really small ways we can make that happen, but every single one of us has a call upon our lives. So maybe today is about taking that breath and then living out the purpose that God has given you. For us collectively to know Jesus and make him known in a new way, with a new vigor. To know that love and that grace and hope 
never fail. So maybe today is your day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am uh, humbled that even standing here, Father, and challenging a room full of people to remember, I remember. Father, I remember where I was. I remember how far gone I was when you chose to invade my life. Father, thank you for Jesus. God, thank you for salvation, for redemption, and Father, for purpose. God, that I, who was selfish and destructive in every area of my life, Father, you have turned that, and I am so far from perfect, and you know it, Father. But you have said that you have set my life to be selfless, to serve others, and that is my purpose. Whatever that looks like, wherever we are, Father, I pray that you would remind me of that today. As we look at your word throughout this month, that we won't forget where we were. We won't forget in the incredible majesty of your cross. We won't forget what it's done for us in the smallness and the stillness of our lives. So, Father, I pray that we would be a community that is deeply rooted in who we were so that we would know who we are. And in the confidence of your goodness, Father, we would be able to walk out of these doors and bring light to dark places. God, we would reject what culture would say is that we have to be good enough or we have to be smart enough or we have to have done enough Bible studies or Father, when we want to say, who am I? Remind us. You're with us. And that's enough. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.